Our text today will be from Hebrews chapter 1 on the first uh, four verses. But we will be reading all of chapter 1 and part of chapter 2 for context. Now, as I read, remember that this is indeed God's holy, inspired word. A letter to the Hebrews. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person, and upholding all things by the word, by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty and high having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn to the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are, not, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the words spoken through angels prove steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience receive a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let us seek his face. O glorious God, we confess that we were born in darkness, and we confess that without your spirit enlightening our minds to see the glory of Jesus Christ in your word, we would be utterly helpless. And we pray as we meditate on your word this morning that you'd be pleased to exalt your son and make him glorious in our midst and that you would also transform us into his image. While we pray this in Christ's name, amen. So, <clears throat> we are living in some very, very anxious days. When you look at the world around us, the future that we once imagined seems to be left behind. We once thought we'd live in times of great security and our bank accounts wouldn't tremble as the stock market shakes. And we have this sense of anxiety because we see cracks in the foundation of Western society. And as we see these cracks coming to the foundation of what once held up the world around us, we feel a sense of anxiety. We even see cracks now coming into many churches that we once thought were very stable. Churches that we thought were faithful, in one sense, might even make it till Christ came. 
And we're beginning to see that there's cracks in the foundation that's causing all sorts of other issues to happen. And maybe you even know certain friends who have walked away from the faith and are no longer standing on a sure ground. And you yourself are wondering, will I make it to the end? Have I been so fixated, so bolted down to a foundation that can keep me in the day of Christ's second coming? Or will my foundation... Or are there cracks in my foundation that I won't be able to stand and I'll fall down? This is the same issue facing those in the, whom, to whom the letter of excuse me, Hebrews is written to. They're living in very anxious times. This letter is written right before the destruction of the temple. And it's written to an audience of primarily Jewish Christians, Christians who, Jews who had come to accept Jesus Christ as the Messiah. They had left behind their old way of life, the ceremonial laws, and we're now following Christ. And there was signs in the air that something significant was about ready to happen. And in AD 70, this big thing would be the destruction of the Jewish temple. Most of us don't realize how significant such an event was. But for a Jew, to lose the temple would to be lose your one connection with God. All of Moses was in one sense set up to create a way for Old Testament Israel to approach a holy God through a system of sacrifices. And as this temple broke down and was destroyed by the Romans, the Jews were left with no way to approach a holy God. And here in the letter of Hebrews, we find out that there's a new foundation that's been laid. In particular, in our text today, we see that Jesus Christ, as he is set forth in the holy inspired word of God, is the only safe foundation for your Christian life. Again, Jesus Christ, as he is set forth in the inspired word of the triune God, is the only safe foundation to build your Christian life on. And we'll see this in our text today under two headings. First, we'll see that the Bible is the inspired word of the triune God. And then we will see that Jesus Christ is the only safe foundation for your Christian life. So as we consider these first four verses, be examining your own heart. Ask yourself, what am I built upon? Am I trusting my good works? Am I trusting the world around me? Am I even trusting in a future pastor? What, what is my hope that I'm going to stand when Christ comes again? Search your hearts and see if Jesus Christ indeed is that one foundation upon, you, upon whom you have put all your hope in this world and in the world to come. So let's look now here at verse 1. And what we're going to see in verse 1 is that the Bible is the inspired word of the triune God. Notice here the subject of this verse is. It's God. God himself has spoken to humanity. Do you realize this? The infinite, the eternal, the unchangeable one who is holy, who dwells in unapproachable light, has spoken to creatures such as you and I finite creatures with tiny little brains. And he has, from his infinite being, condescended and spoken to us. <clears throat> in particular, in this verse, it's not just all of humanity. He's, the author is speaking about a way that God spoke in time past, and it was to the fathers. Now, as this is a Jewish audience, these, these fathers would be ancient Israel. The Israelites, this tiny little postage stamp in the Middle East, received such a great revelation from God. 
that he had spoken to them. And yet God didn't speak to every single Israelite. It wasn't like every single Israelite got a special message from God telling them about the way of salvation and about how they should live their life. Notice as well how this verse goes. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. There was a, a mediator to whom God spoke to his people and it was through the Old Testament prophets. Now, the prophets said a lot more than we actually can find out. When, for example, we know that for a fact God spoke to Adam and Eve certain things that are not recorded in the Bible. But if we look at the author of the Hebrews, he doesn't care about vain speculations about what God might have said to certain prophets that never got written down. When the author to the Hebrews wants to know what God the Father said to the people of old, he goes to his Old Testament. If you look at the, the verses 5 through 14, you're going to see there seven quotes from the Old Testament. And what's significant from these quotes is that they're all attributed to God speaking. And if you go and look up each of these quotes, some of them are about God speaking, and other of them are David speaking or some other inspired psalmist. So how do we have, in one sense, David speaking, yet the author says here, look, for example, um, he said, which would be God. God spoke, and again God spoke. All these times are being attributed to God speaking, yet we have an Old Testament saint speaking. That's because the very words of the Old Testament themselves are inspired. It's not just merely that the authors who wrote these words were brought about and carried by the Spirit, but the very product, the very thing they produced was the Word of God. And you can even see that in the way that, very subtly, the author shifts between different tenses that he uses. He uses the past tense, like God had spoke, spoke. It was indeed a completed act. 400 years had passed, and God had not spoken since, and what he had said to the prophets was a done deal, and it was written down. Yet he also says it in the perfect, if you, at the very end. It was something that was spoken in the past, but it was continuing on to the future. And he even uses the present tense, that what was written of old is God still speaking to his people today. And this is an amazing fact to think about, that there is no other book that is inspired like the Bible. If you want to hear what God has to say, you don't need to go look for signs and visions. You need to pick up this book, open it up and read. And even the Old Testament, you'll see there, that it is the very word of God to his people. And now when we consider the rest of the New Testament, for example, in 2 Peter, the New Testament authors realized when they were writing their letters and their Gospels, they were writing scriptures. They were to be putting onto the same level as the Old Testament prophets. And that the New Testament, just like the Old Testament, is the inspired word of God. So what we've seen so far in the text right now in verse 1 is that the Bible is the inspired word of God. But I want to draw our attention to one more fact that the author of the Hebrews wants us to see. It's not just merely the word of some vague God, but it's the word of the triune God. If we look at verse 1, it's the Father, excuse me, in chapter 1, it's the Father speaking. It's not the Son, but it's the Father speaking in the Old Testament. But if you look then at chapter 2, at the end of it, you'll see more quotes from the Old Testament. And this time, it's the Son who's speaking. And then if you turn to chapter 3, you'll see even more quotes. 
And in this situation, it's the Holy Spirit speaking. In each situation, a different person of the triune God is attributed to speaking in the Old Testament. It's not just some book from God dropped from heaven. It is the book of the triune God given to his people so that they might hear his voice. And it's important to realize that, that this is, again, a very special book that we have in our hands. So if this is the inspired word of God, how should we respond to our Bibles? Should we let them sit on our shelves collecting dust? Should we have them on mantelpieces spread out, nice open, and like propped up on a stage? Like This is our, our little... Our special Bible that we never actually read, but it's important to us. Or should we have diligence to seek out the Scriptures, to hear from God Himself? Children, I'd, I'd ask you, how diligent are you at your studies at school? You're on vacation right now. Do you take learning to read seriously? You might not be able to read now, but the reason your parents want you to go to school isn't so that you can go read books instead of watching movies. It's not so you can go get a good-paying job one day. Ultimately, your parents want you to go to school and do well there is so that you can have a vibrant faith, a vibrant walk with God. And part of that walk with God is being able to read your Bibles. So when you go back to school, once this break is over, you might not find school fun, but are you excited to be able to learn to read so that you yourself can hear what God has to say to you? This should be exciting for you that when you learn to read, you can pick up a Bible and you'll be able to hear God speaking to you on your own. You can wake up in the morning and slowly, verse by verse, pick away and learn from God himself. This should be a reason to study hard in school and do well, not just to impress your parents with good grades, but to grow in grace and holiness. How about for others of you who've maybe not read your Bible much and you're just sort of new to your Christian faith? Do you find the Bible to be confusing? Do you, every time you start a Bible reading plan, get bogged down in the book of Leviticus, have no idea what the sacrifices are, or you get maybe to Chronicles and you start going through the genealogies and you're like, I can't pronounce these names, and you just give up? Part of sanctified common sense says, if you don't read your Bible, you'll never get better at reading your Bible. I did cross-country as in high school, and I like the simplicity of cross-country. If you wanted to run faster, you just had to go run. Like If you did basketball, you had to do drills and practice, and there's a lot more tech, technical things you had to learn to do well at basketball. If you want to do well at running, put on your shoes, step outside, and run. If you want to read your Bible and understand it, you don't need to go to seminary, you don't need to go online and listen to lectures. You need to pick up your book and read it. And you're not going to get everything the first time. No one expected you to become a Bible scholar the first time you read your Bible. David himself says he meditates on his word day and night. And David only had five books in his Bible. He had the Pentateuch. And if David spent day and night meditating on the Pentateuch, excuse me, how much more do we need to read and reread our Bibles to actually understand what's there? So if you read the first time or second time or maybe even the fifth time or tenth time and you don't understand, don't give up. Keep pressing on. Keep reading. Make a plan. It's a new year. Today is the new year. Choose a Bible reading plan. Maybe you're going to read the Bible this for the first time this year. It's about three or four chapters to get through the Bible in a year. Maybe that's too much. So just choose a plan that fits what you can do. Stick to it. 
and hear from God himself. Now, as I look around, I'm assuming that there's several of you who've been reading your Bibles for decades, and you know all the stories. You can even go through the genealogies, and when you hear certain names, you're like, I know who that guy is, and you can piece your Bible together because you've read it for decades. Maybe you've read your Bible a hundred times, and now you're tempted the coast. Like, I know what's in that book. I know all the 66 books. I'm just going to coast now and no longer diligently read my Bible. The thing is, though, we don't read our Bibles to get a bunch of information. That's what the Internet does. It gives us a lot of information. We read our Bibles because we want to hear from God. How weird would it be if you saw a couple who had been married for 50 years and the husband, after 50 years, said, you know, I think I've just heard enough of my wife's voice. I think I know her well enough that I can just stop listening during dinner time, and I don't need to hear any more from her. You'd be like, that is weird and strange, and you probably don't actually know your wife. Fifty years of being married doesn't mean I can finally stop listening. Fifty years of Bible reading doesn't mean I can finally just coast, and I don't need to actually read anymore. We read our Bibles... Because that's where God speaks to us. And so every day we should have an excitement to hear what God says from us. And so press on. Don't give up. Keep reading. Keep seeking the face of God every day in the scriptures. Because that's why we pick up our Bibles. So that's what we see in chapter 1. So verse, excuse me again, verse 1. That the Bible is the inspired word of the triune God. But now in verse 2, what we see is that Jesus Christ is the only foundation for your Christian faith. It's important to go to our Bibles and read our Bibles. But why do you go to your Bible? You go there to see Jesus Christ. There's a quote from one Puritan who says, the only book you're going to read in heaven is the face of Jesus Christ. So you can read as many books as you want now, even the Bible. But eventually there will be one day where you're just going to see Christ face to face and you that's all you will need to know of him. But right now we don't live by sight, we live by faith. So we go to our Bibles in order to see Jesus Christ. And that's what the, the author in verse 2 is going to drive home to us. It's not merely the Bible that's going to sustain you to the end. It's not merely the Bible that you build your faith upon. It's Jesus Christ and him alone on whom you must build your faith. And that type of faith will actually be able to keep you to the very end. And he draws this point by comparing and contrasting the revelation that was given under the Old Covenant to support the Mosaic economy and the revelation that's now given as a foundation for the New Covenant. Look at how he compares the Old Covenant. He says it was given at various times and in various ways. These are snapshots. What the, the Old Testament saints had was not the full movie picture. They had storyboards. Before any movies ever made, some artist draws up all the scenes and they have little sketches of what the whole movie is going to look like. And then from those sketches, the director comes in and can say, I see where this is going, and he goes and actually makes the movie with all the fun features in it. But with the Old Testament saints, all they had was this storyboard, a picture here, a picture there, of what was coming. They see an animal sacrificed, and they're like, that lamb cannot take away my blood, take away my sin, but it's pointing to something greater that's coming. They see a temple, 
And even Solomon himself, when he sees a temple built, says, this house cannot contain you, God. That even though it's a picture of God dwelling with man on earth, it was pointing to something else. It was a snapshot of something far greater coming. And various ways. They had dreams, they had visions, sometimes verbal revelations. But nothing compares to the revelation that's given to the new covenant. There's no everything else that we're going to see later has something from verse one that's contrasted with verse two. Nothing in verse two compares to this. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the full revelation of who God is. He's perfect. He's complete. It's the it's release day has come and the movie is given out. And you see all that God has to say to his people because as we just confessed, Jesus Christ is God of God, light of light, very God of very God. It's not pieces and parts of the will of God. It's the whole revelation of who God is. So we see in various times and various ways versus a perfect revelation. We see it was given in times past. 400 years had passed before this prophets had spoken. And now at the very end of the Mosaic economy, we see God has in these last days, at the very end, God again speaks to his people. What was old, one was old, one is now new. We also see again that it was to the fathers. Now it's to us, to the church. Both Jew and Gentile get this revelation. I'm assuming none of us here have ever been to Israel. And very, so none of us probably are here either Jews, but somehow we have the word of God. Once there was a small group of people who received it. Now nations have received this revelation from God. And now this is the most important point of contrast. The old covenant revelation that was given to hold up the old covenant economy was given by the prophets. But this revelation is given to us by his son. I don't know what I'm reading from the New King James. I don't know what your translation does, but in my Bible the word his is in italics. And there's several translations that will do this where if there's not an actual word that corresponds in the Greek or Hebrew, but the English needs to be smoothed out, they they throw the word in with italics so that you know that there's actually nothing in the Greek or Hebrew for that word. And it would be very awkward to read what it actually literally says. What it says here would be, to us by son. The point that the author is trying to make here is he's not trying to identify a new prophet. He's trying to emphasize the quality of the revelation that was given. The revelation that came by prophets produced a storyboard. Here we have something of a whole new caliber that's been given. And it is God himself, Jesus Christ, who's been given. Before, Moses would have to ascend Mount Sinai to receive the blueprints to build the temple. And then after he received them, he'd have to come back down and tell the people how they should build the temple. Now we have heaven actually come down to earth. It's not like Jesus Christ had to go up to the Father, be like, what do you want me to tell the people? and then come back down and tell the people. He was, again, very God of very God. This is nothing like this has ever happened before. And this should be, this this shows us that there's a complete and full revelation that's given. And it's not just mere, mere words. Yes, Jesus preached. He spoke like the prophets did. 
but we have something much more significant. God incarnate, as we had just celebrated a week ago, God in the flesh had come to his people and fully revealed who God was. And because he is very God, he is able to lay a new foundation for the new covenant. He, as God, he is fully sufficient for this new covenant. What was given in Moses could not sustain us in the new covenant. It worked for this Israel. It worked with types and shadows, pictures pointing to something coming, but not the real substance. Now we have the full substance given to us. And with this full substance, we're able to build and secure our Christian faith. And then he goes on in verse 3, 3 and 4, to show us even more ways how Jesus Christ is worthy of you to fully build your Christian life upon. And he gives us seven ways. Note the first. Um, whom he appointed, this is the Father, whom he appointed heir of all things. This is a very interesting one to bring out. Because if you think about it, if he's God, he already has all things. As the Son, all things were his. So how is it that the Father can appoint him heir of all things? What's happening here is the author is pointing out something that happened in eternity. In the counsel of God, the Father covenanted with the Son in order to make known the Father's love for the Son. And the Son agreed to this covenant in order to make his love known to the Father. And a part of this covenant was the Father agreeing to give the incarnate Son all things to let the world know that the Father loves the Son. And so he, the Father, covenanted with the Son. Have you covenanted with Jesus Christ? When we may take marriage vows, we say that we will forsake all others in sickness and sorrow, in plenty or want, in health and in sickness. We will cling to, cling to our spouse alone. Have you made those same vows to Jesus Christ? Have you said to him, I will forsake all others? Any hope that I have in myself, any desires of this world, I will put aside for the sake of having you and you alone. For with you are all the treasures that I could ever want or desire. Have you covenanted with Jesus Christ that he alone is your God and you will be his? Christ is willing that he would be yours. Are you willing to give yourself to him? And why should you give yourself to him? Because the Father has given him all things. If Jesus Christ was worthy of the love of God the Father, isn't he not so much more worthy of your love, of all your affection? Is he not worthy for you to build your entire life upon him? So that's the first thing we see. Because God has covenanted with Christ, he is a sure foundation for your Christian faith. Not only that, through Jesus Christ, we see again in verse 2, the worlds were made. Before, become, before going to seminary, I was a software developer. And after I would write code, there would be a tech writer who would take the program and write up a description of what it did. But they would always come back to the developers and ask them if they had described the program correctly. And they came to the developers because they knew that the developer made it, and therefore he knew the ins and the outs of how it worked. Jesus made the world. He knows the ins and outs of everything that goes on in this world. 
And because he knows all these ins and outs, he is a sure foundation to build your Christian life upon. Can you think of anyone wiser, anyone smarter, that you would trust to build your eternity upon? There isn't anyone. So trust in Christ. Third, we see that Jesus Christ is the true representation of all that God the Father is. In the beginning of verse C, we see that Jesus, who being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person. Often the president, if he has to say something, will send an ambassador in his set. If it's a tiny little country and it's an insignificant deal, he sends an ambassador. If it's an important deal, he sends his right-hand man. When the issue is of the utmost importance, he himself goes in his place because he doesn't want there to be any confusion. Often we send people, if you have children, you might get a report from one kid and you're like, I don't know if that's the right report. I need to go back to the sources and make sure what was said is actually true. We don't have any questions with Jesus on this point because as God, as the brightness of his glory, all that the Father is in his beauty is seen in Jesus Christ. All that the Father is, his substance, is the Jesus Christ is the expressed image of that. So if you want to know who God the Father is, Jesus Christ is that image. And so because he truly shows who God is, you can truly build your life upon him. And then after that we see he upholds all things by the word of his power. Every moment that this world is kept together is because Jesus Christ holds the world together. Not only is he holding the world together, but he's ordaining every single atom where it ought to be placed, every single event that ought to be happened, every snowflake that falls, falls because God has ordained it to happen. And if he is controlling all these other events in the world, he can keep you to the very end. He can ordain all the situations in your life to grow your faith, to keep your faith. And he can keep you grounded on him to the very end. There's many foundations that are laid that the house just slides right off of and it has been fully rooted or anchored to it. But Jesus Christ is such a foundation that you can build upon that he will keep you steadfast to the very end. Not only does he uphold all things by the word of his power, but he himself has purged our sins. If you want to stand on the podium, and the day when Christ comes to give rewards, Christ is able to cleanse you from all your sins, to give you a righteousness that makes you actually now worthy to stand upon that podium. And he has done so because he came, he died for sinners such as you and I on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago. He took our sins upon him and he bore the penalty in our place that we might be forgiven of our sins cleansed from all unrighteousness, so that we might actually be able, therefore, to stand upon Jesus Christ and his righteousness and be prepared for the second coming. There is no one else in this world who can forgive your sins. There is no one else who can prepare and equip you for what is coming. Christ alone is able to do so. Uh, Second to last, we see that he is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. If any of you have ever read history, you realize there are a whole host of terrible kings. You just go through the line 
And he'll be like, I'm really glad I didn't live in that century under that dictator because that would have been miserable. Why do we have so many terrible kings in this world? So many bad rulers? Sin. Sin dwells within every king who has stood upon a throne or sat upon a throne and tried to rule a people. And he has, some kings have been good and have desired the good of their people, but even the good kings, there is corruption within them and they have not ruled as they ought to. Jesus is perfect, pure and undefiled. He didn't have to come and give himself as a sacrifice for you and I, but he did so out of love. Is there anyone else you'd rather have rule in your life, the one to be submitted to. Jesus Christ as king is a good king and therefore worthy of you to lay down, to build your entire life upon that he alone would be the foundation that keeps you to the end. Lastly, in verse 4, we see that Jesus is a safe foundation because he is greater than every single created being. Verse 4 says, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. There is no, nothing in creation superior than the angels. Yet the angels are nothing compared to Jesus Christ. In the rest of this chapter, the author is going to show us just how superior Jesus is to the angels. But for now, he simply states a fact that there is nothing in all of this world, stronger, more secure than Jesus Christ to build your entire life upon. So while in the Old Covenant, the revelation given through Moses proved steadfast for the Mosaic economy, it was only meant to be temporary. The Mosaic economy was temporary housing set up for the people, causing the long for a greater day that was coming. The foundation laid in Jesus Christ, since he is God, is a foundation laid that is meant to last for all eternity. It's a foundation that you can build your life upon. Now, as we consider this text, I think there's several dangers that we need to consider that are present in the world around us if we actually want to make sure that we have built our life upon Jesus Christ. One of these dangers is the continuation of revelation. Yes, there are some people that we know are really out there in the charismatic circles. You know, like, I, I don't think that would ever draw me in. But even within the large umbrella of Reformed, there are certain people that um, put forth the idea that God is still speaking through prophets today to his people and that we shouldn't quench the spirit and therefore we should listen to people who get prophetic messages. Here's the problem. Prophecy, by definition, produces shadows. And that was okay in the old economy because the point of those shadows was to cause you to look to something greater. Again, you saw the temple and you were longing for a greater temple. You saw the sacrifices and you were longing for a greater sacrifice. You even had the words of Moses and you were longing for a greater Moses. There is no place for shadows under the new covenant. If you're so taken up with prophetic shadows, that means you've stopped looking at Jesus Christ. You've turned your back on him and you're looking elsewhere. You're looking to the shadows. And what's going to happen if you turn your back from Christ and look to the shadows is that you're going to be inevitably drawn away from him. One Reformed pastor even 
to his congregation, put forth that you should go tell people. He had a vision about sharks and pirates and cannons. And you should just go tell people and step out in faith and tell them about sharks, pirates, and cannons. Have we forgotten the glories of Jesus Christ? Have we forgotten how he is the only balm to heal a sin-sick soul? Have we so gotten bored with Jesus that we need to tell people about pirates to encourage them in their Christian walk? If we say to someone, Jesus Christ is king, we might not know what's going on in their life. But if we tell someone that Jesus Christ is king, if they're in one sense hurting and discouraged by the events that have happened in their life, that can encourage them, knowing that Jesus has ordained everything that has happened to them. And because he's ordained that, and he's a good king, they know that what's happened to them is good, and they can be comforted by that. Maybe they're walking in sin, and you tell them that Jesus Christ is king. That should humble them. That should be like, I have sinned against a holy king, and he has seen all my sin, and therefore I should repent in dust and ashes and turn from my sins. You don't need to go looking for shadows, for a little whispering of the wind to encourage a fellow believer in Jesus Christ. All you need is Jesus Christ. If you know him, tell one another about Christ. That's all you need to encourage someone to keep clinging to Christ, that Christ alone would be the foundation of their lives. Another danger that is faced when we think about having our foundation be in Jesus Christ is reading our Bibles with a carnal and worldly mind. And this shows up in two ways. And you might be surprised that these two ways fall under the same umbrella. Liberalism and cold orthodoxy. What is liberalism other than taking the Bible and trying to fit to man's standards? You read your Bible, there's certain things you're ashamed about. So I'm going to now take these things, strip them out, and try to make the Bible fit with the world around me so I don't have to be ashamed. I'm going to study it diligently. I'm going to think hard about it so I can make it fit with the world. Dead orthodoxy, on the other hand, is like, I'm going to study my Bible really hard so I can prove to my college friends that they were wrong and I'm right and my Reformed faith is indeed true and biblical. And I can now, instead of trying to assimilate to the world, stand above the world. In neither case is there any love for Christ. In neither case is there any warmth of Jesus Christ. It's purely a literary study. You could just go get an English degree and it would be much safer for you to study other books. Go read the classics and critique them and argue what Plato truly taught and trying to argue what God has truly said in his word without actually having faith. If you don't have faith, you'll either go to liberalism or dead orthodoxy and neither will save you and prove to be a firm foundation at the last day. One more danger that we need to realize about basing our life on Jesus Christ is idolatrous views of who Jesus is. It's amazing. Actually, most of the world will probably tell you that they love Jesus Christ. But then you ask them who Jesus is, and you hear what they actually describe to you, and you're like, where did you get that idea? When I read my Bible, that is not the Jesus I read about. And they have thought in their own imaginations who Jesus is, and they, in one sense, have fallen in love with their own image of Jesus. But here's the fact, that Jesus does not exist. The Jesus that you walked into the woods and imagined 
the, the perfect person that you would wish you could be, that you now imagine him to be, that guy doesn't exist. And if he doesn't exist, he cannot save you. You need to pick up your Bibles and get the picture of Jesus Christ set forth there because that is the only Jesus that exists. And that is the only Jesus who can save us. Idolatrous views of him are just as dangerous as a liberal or dead orthodoxy that is completely rooted in the Bible but has no picture of Christ. So what should we do with so many dangers around us? I propose two simple steps. Read your whole Bible and read it with your whole person. You need to read your whole Bible. Don't just choose certain verses that you love and like most of all. We all should probably memorize John 3.16. But if that is the only verse you've memorized, you are going to have a very lopsided view of who God is. Indeed, God the Father has so loved the world that he sent his, only one, his one and only Son. But Jesus Christ himself said, when a tower fell over and killed certain people, that unless you too repent, you will likewise perish. We need a whole Bible to have a whole picture of who Jesus Christ is. And so when you pick up a Bible reading plan, don't just choose a plan that has 30 verses that really fit who you think Jesus is. Read every verse, because then you will get a full picture of who Christ is. Lastly, read with the whole person. Read with your mind. Read with your heart. Read with your will. Read with your mind. You need to think about what the Bible says. This isn't just open up and just See how this verse makes me feel today. You have to grasp what is this text actually saying. It's so easy to read the Bible and be like, this is my preconceived notion. I'm going to read it into this verse, and that's what it says. We have to use the mind to actually dig out of the Bible what God wants us to say. We need our minds to remember the Bible. It's, it's so easy in one sense. We remember so many things in the world around us. Probably I, as a kid, watched too many movies, and now I can quote, many lines from movies that will do me no eternal good. But how hard is it for us to remember the scriptures? And we should set our minds to remember it all so we, the image that we've read of Christ, we can now remember there. Not only do we need all our mind, but we need all our heart as well. We need to set our hearts to actually love the Jesus that we see there. If we walk away from reading our Bibles and are cold and indifferent to the Christ that we've seen, we haven't seen Jesus Christ then. We have not grasped him and our hearts have not gone out and loved him. And often our hearts will love different things in the word. Maybe again you just really like being right. And so you read your Bible because you want to be right. Being right, loving being right and loving Jesus are two different things. Have you gone to your Bible again to prove people wrong? Or have you gone to your Bible to see who Jesus is because you love him? Have you gone to your Bibles because you love the study and you just are interested? Like, there is no book like the Bible. There is no book so written and interwoven together like the Bible and you're just fascinated with all the patterns in Scripture. Or are you actually interested in the one whom those patterns point towards? And is that whom you love? If you want to have a safe way to build your life in Christ, you must put your heart into reading your Bible. Lastly, you must read your Bible with your will. You must believe in Jesus Christ and you must obey Jesus Christ. You must wholly trust in him alone, forsaking all others, and you must keep his commandments. 
Christ himself said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you say you love Christ, but you continue to walk in sin, Jesus says you don't actually love him. And if you don't love him, you've not built your life on Christ. In the Sermon on the Mount, Christ has a parable of a man who builds his life on sinking sand, and the house is destroyed, and a man who builds his life on a rock, and that rock stands in the storm. And he says, you've built your life on the rock, not if you simply hear what I say, but you do what I say as well. If you want to have your life firmly rooted on Jesus Christ, you must go to your Bible, and then you must embrace Jesus Christ with your whole mind, with your whole heart, and with your whole will, with faith and repentance. That's what it means to be firmly rooted on Jesus Christ. And that is the only foundation that will be able to keep you in the great day when Christ comes again. When my wife and I moved down to the south, we decided we needed to earn some sweat equity, so we bought a fixer-upper. And it's been a lot of work. But when we bought this fixer-upper, we passed over any house that had any issue with its foundation for two simple reasons. One, if there's an issue with a foundation, it was something that I could not fix. And if I couldn't fix it, we had a serious problem. And the issue number two was, if there was an issue with the foundation in that house, the crack in the drywall was just a symptom. The reason the drywall was cracking was because the house was sinking. And if I didn't have a fixed foundation, I could try to patch the drywall up as much as I wanted to, but every year it would just crack again and again and get worse and worse. So we refused any house that had a bad foundation. What have you put your soul on? Have you put your soul on something that's a weak foundation that actually cannot sustain you to the very end? Have you laid your entire life upon the foundation of Jesus Christ as he is set forth in the word of God, the only safe foundation that can keep you when the storm, is, when the storm hits the shore and rages against your house? Have you laid your entire life upon Jesus Christ? Do you know who he is? Have you loved him? Have you clung to him by faith alone? And have you repented of your sins and turned to him with new obedience? It's only when you've laid your entire life upon Christ that you'll be able to weather the storms around the crumbling world around us and be prepared to see Christ face to face in glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love and adore you. And we do thank you that you've given us a sure foundation in Jesus Christ that we can lay our entire lives upon him and that he will keep us until that great day Father, we ask that your Spirit would persuade us that indeed he is a sure foundation and that your Spirit would keep us rooted in him and that we would forsake all others and love him to the very end. Would Christ be magnified and glorified this Lord's Day? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.